Good evening and welcome to Salem Presbyterian Church. My name is Austin and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I was meeting with Jonah this week and I said, Jonah, I love when you get up there and you say, y'all doing all right? He said, but I think we need to explain to them that it's not rhetorical. And I just wanted to applaud you this week because I heard a lot of, yeah, so it's not rhetorical. That's a message from me to you on behalf of Jonah. Um, So today begins Advent, if you didn't notice, in the church. And the word Advent means a time of preparation, of uh, expectant waiting. And seasons in the church calendar, like Advent and Lent, they sometimes feel, at least to me, like they're a little rigid or like they're sort of religious rituals. But that's not always the case. That's just, that's just in some traditions. And um, I think if you do it right, uh, they can actually be these really creative seasons where we try to embody the story of Jesus, embody what it was like uh, in the Bible, in the story that we're grafted into, but in our time, right? So in Advent, we wait for the long-expected Jesus, the King the Messiah, the shepherd of God's people, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's already come, but for us to appreciate his coming and his continued living in the resurrection, once a year, we set aside a time to embody a drama that reminds us of the light that he brought into the world, into the darkness Sorry, I'm losing my voice, so you're just going to hear me clear it a lot. Um, This is one reason that Advent uh, and Christmas happen in the wintertime in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, in In those short, dark days of winter, we light candles to... to warm our souls to the good news that light drives out darkness. That they cannot coexist. That when light comes, darkness will not continue to exist. And I don't know if you've ever just lit one small candle in a dark room, but uh, sometimes that's that's just the best kind of lighting that just fills you with wonder and tranquility in a dark space. And that's what I think of when I think of Jesus coming. You know, as we enter Advent, I think of this small baby coming into a dark world and filling it with light in a small way at first that brings a certain amount of tranquility, but that will be ever-growing. And we get to see this especially in the Gospel of John. So I just want to start the sermon out by talking about who John is and how God uses him as a writer. And then I want to look at the passage in two parts. Uh, The first part is the Word made flesh, and the second part is the light of humanity. Uh, So first, let's, let's talk about who John is. There's two prominent Johns in the New Testament. Uh, The first is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the John that's being referred to in verse 6. And you might have wondered if John was just referring to himself in the third person. There was once a man named John. But he's actually talking about uh, John the Baptist there. Although you wouldn't be wrong to think that it was funny that John the Gospel writer is talking in the third person. Because he actually does that later in the Gospel. He refers to himself as the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved, right? 
So that's John the Evangelist. He's a gospel writer, and uh, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was also the youngest of the disciples, and I actually think those two are related. All the other apostles were probably dead by the time he wrote his gospel, and that's how he got away with saying, you know, I was the one he really loved. Because the rest of them weren't there to be like, he wasn't, he didn't like you that much, John. Um, I, I picture John being this sort of philosopher poet. I, I picture him uh, around the disciples, but not in the mix with them all the time. You know, they're off arguing about who's the greatest disciple or trying to convince Jesus to take up the sword instead of going to the cross. And I, I picture John just sort of kind of gazing into the dust as it's in the, in the light of the sunshine, daydreaming. Uh, and I get this sense from his writing style. Uh, God in his fullness has given us the Bible to reflect his person and character. And in the New Testament, we have three author, authors and they, that, uh, that write the vast majority of the New Testament. And the first one is Luke who is the great articulate historian. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the Apostles. And then we get Paul, who is the theologian and the pastor to missionaries and to new churches. And then we have John. And John's writing is very, very distinct. Uh, It's really distinct in the Greek, and I'm sure you pick up on that in the English too. Uh, He uses small words, and he repeats his phrases often without changing much. And uh, he truly has, has sort of a poet-philosopher way of communicating. Where the other Gospels record the history of Jesus, John uh, kind of introduces color and poetry and, and mystery. And he, the way I like to describe John is that he, he laces in his stories, because he alternates the way he writes his stories, he laces the cosmic into the earthly, is how John writes. So John is used by God to write a wonderfully strange gospel. And then also he wrote three short epistles, and then he wrote an even stranger book that is about the advent yet to come, which is Revelation. So that's who we're going to be spending the next couple months with, John. John, the, the gospel writer, the evangelist. All right, so now let's, let's look at this passage, and I want to again talk about the uh, Word Made Flesh and the Light of Humanity. So this little section of John that we're talking about, John 1, it, it's, it's an incredibly famous part of Scripture. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard this passage read before. It's often called the prologue. And many of the commentaries I read on this passage said the exact same thing, which I thought was very interesting. And none of them was like citing each other. They, they just had become this collective wisdom amongst scholars that they said, prologue just undersells these verses. It's not... It's not adequate. And instead, they were all, like a number of these commentaries were suggesting that this passage is like an overture to an opera. And I think what they mean by this is to say that this is not, this little section of scripture is not a mere introductory section, the way a prologue would be. It's not a preliminary footnote. Uh, This is a work of art 
And it, it sets the stage for a, a grand story. And it has wonder in it, but it also has these allusions to other stories that make you wonder, oh yeah, I remember that from the past, and where is this going? That, that's what John is doing. It echoes Genesis 1 in its paraphrasing, calling to mind images that aren't explicit in the first verse. If, you, if you've read the Bible, when you hear the phrase, in the beginning was the word. That's a very simple phrase, but your mind goes way beyond that simple moment. You're not like, oh, you know, John is just saying, here's the start of the story. You read that one sentence in John and you begin thinking about Genesis immediately. You start picturing God breathing out words that form into creation, that soar across an empty expanse and fill it with light and land and water and vegetation and stars and suns and creatures of the earth and the sea and the sky. And while we understand that the sun was there in hindsight, we get that theologically, John is now actually having us live in that. He's setting Jesus in creation, in our minds, in this undeniable way to where we're picturing Jesus there in a way that it doesn't say that explicitly in Genesis. So even before we leave verse 1, just in that little phrase, we've got this huge image of Jesus molding together the cosmos with myriad details from tigers to ocean waves to galaxies to falcons. So not only is this verse conjuring up Genesis 1, it's also bringing up these other images for us, these conceptions of, of Jesus of the Trinity, of how God is revealed to us. So he's talking about the Word made flesh, but what he's referring to there is Jesus. So what is John talking about when he says the Word? Why does John not just start off by saying, all right, so when it started, there was Jesus, and then there was the Father, and then there was the Holy Spirit. So that's... That's it, everybody. Boom. God, through John, is instead hinting to us that the Trinity is very complex and, and relational. And lest we try to make a math equation out of the Trinity, he explains it in this circuitous way. People over time have tried to explain the Trinity with diagrams and analogies, and, and they, they all fail, and that is okay, and I'm going to critique a couple of them right now, and I just want to confess that I have done all of these, so if you have, we're together, I'm not critiquing you. Um, the first one is, is this image of a pitcher of water poured out into three glasses, which is not right, according to John. Because as John is not saying they're, they're, this, they're made of the same stuff, but they're broken down into three different parts. He says the word, he doesn't say that the word is the same substance as God. He says the word is God, and God is one. Others have tried to explain the Trinity. Now, this one's a little bit more acceptable, but I, just, I, I have to be faithful. My advisor in seminary 
had a real axe to grind against this one. And I see where he's coming from. Um, Others have tried to explain the Trinity by using this word, Godhead. And what they do is they'll draw, they'll write the word Godhead, and then they'll draw a branch that says the Father, and a branch that says the Son, and a branch that says the Holy Spirit. And the reason that that fails is that really that's just four parts. And, and what you're emphasizing is that there's the Godhead, and then the Godhead has these appendages, and they're the Holy Spirit and the Son. But it doesn't, it doesn't reflect that they're relating to each other. There's something mysterious about the fact that they are one and three at the same time. It's, it's too clinical. God is one, and God is three. And we don't know how to explain that. But John is giving us a little bit of insight into at least picturing it. So what John is saying to us is that there is a real God, the creator. And he goes on to say later in chapter one and in one of his epistles that, of course, we've never seen God, but the son came to the earth in Jesus and showed us the love of God. And that is very unique and admittedly strange compared to any other story in the history of humanity. There's no, there's no uh, religious moral code that's coming out of this. Uh, there's no explanatory myth that's trying to, trying to create a rationale for why things are the way they are in the world. And it doesn't really offer us a philosophy. It's just a gift, which is pretty peculiar. Most religions have some sort of moral or philosophical offering that's pretty plain to see. And John is just not giving us that at all. I believe with John that when he says that the word was made flesh, it means that the Son of God came in Jesus Christ. And as it says in verse 14, he lived amongst us. That's strange. And, we, and that because of that, we see his glory. God actually came down to show us his love for humanity, and he, and he lived among us, it says. The original language of that phrase, uh, he lived among us, uh, can also be translated made camp or, or pitched a tent among us. It was, the, it was the term for in Greek for, you know, we were camping together. And that is a great image for what Jesus did. He came and he, he, he lived in our neighborhood. He was on the dirt with us. He didn't swoop down and hover over us on a cloud to let us know from a megaphone about God. He took on flesh and he came in love to die a death of affection and sacrifice. And we've seen glorious things come from that. That, that, that is what is so fascinating to me about Christianity is, yes, it's already an interesting story, but then the way that that story has impacted the world is so interesting. Christians have done awful, awful things because people do awful things. So Christians aren't any different than any other people. We have had things like the Crusades and, and slavery in the United States and lynchings in the Jim Crow South. Okay, we've had churches uh, asking poor people to give money to the church in order to get forgiveness. 
You know, so the church is, you know, Christians are not perfect. But what is amazing to me is the things that Christians have done in history that point to there, there, there must be something to this story because I don't, I've ne- I, you know, I've just not seen anything else in history like what, what has come of Christianity. When the word made flesh and that one camped amongst us, it set off this chain of, of events that, that are just fascinating to watch on, unfold in the world. Um, Christians are the ones that created hospitals. They invented the idea of the hospital. Christians invented the university. The Christians were the ones that led the charge to end slavery. You know, the, the Reformation, in addition to having great theological changes, is the reason that we don't live under authoritarian rule anymore and people actually have the dignity to have a vocation. Right in our city, Christians created Baptist Hospital to cure the sick. And they started Salem College and Wake Forest University to educate young people. So out of, out of this word made flesh coming and dwelling amongst us, healing and teaching and dignity and justice have historically come from Christian institutions. And I think that it is hard to refute that or to point to any group of people that has uh, so consistently, institutionally, impacted the world in those kinds of ways. Why? Why would people do that? Why would people start a hospital or a university? Especially people who are in power, when they, they only have something to lose by bringing health and education to the masses. That is an interesting question to me. So the light of humanity. Now let's look at verse 14. In him was life, and that life was the light of humankind. When we think about Jesus as light, it raises a question for me about how we view light. And this is going to get a little abstract, okay? So hang on with me. Light is something that we generally think of as... Well, I mean, we don't generally think of. Light is outside of us. Okay, it's, it shines around and on to us. However, when we're talking about it in a spiritual sense, there are modern spiritual ideas that, that intuit light in us in a spiritual sense, uh, as inside of us, as something that comes from within and goes out. And historically, that actually comes from Christians. It's morphed, but it started with Christians. It started with the Quakers in the 17th century. And they believed in this thing called the inner light. And, and the way that they read John, they got it from this passage in John. And they thought, well, the light must be inside of us. And if we, if we can discipline ourselves to be quiet, then we can find that light and move it out of ourselves. We can move it outward. And I, I just don't think that they got that right. I don't think they read John right. The idea uh, today of inner light has morphed. So that, is, that inner light thing from the Quakers, that's, that's in the water in America. We, don't, we may not be able to name that, but we all live a little bit in that heritage. And when I look at the, the postmodern Western landscape, I, I just think about... Um, People sensing that 
they're, that all, all of the things about God are, that they can understand are inside of them rather than outside of them and above them. But what John is actually saying is that the light is transcendent. It's outside of us. And it brings its loving goodness down onto us. When I look at our society and our culture right now, there's this word that has just been in my mind all year. I I wrote a song about it. I, I journal about it all the time. And that word is distress. People are distressed. And that distress, I think, comes from discontentment. And that discontentment has many shapes and causes. Um, I, I want to name a few. And some of them, you know, I think a, a lot of them are, are in me. Okay, so I'm not accusing anyone. I, I, I feel these things. Um, one of them is just a physical discontentment. We are, we are physical creatures. We were made with a body. And many of us do not spend our days using our bodies in ways that produce endorphins nor a sense of vocation and production. That's just part of our culture now. We don't finish our day, I don't finish my day, physically tired but mentally satisfied with like a harvest or a product that I gaze upon. There's social discontentment. We're relational creatures And in our environment, which is urban and modernized, we're surrounded by people. And we're surrounded by ways to connect to them. But we're so flooded with human contact, or at least just observing other humans around us, yet we lack much deep or intentional contact. So I think there's a a social discontentment that, that distresses us. There's financial discontentment. You know, let's face it, we are Americans, and so it is just a part of, of our DNA that we want more than we can have. I mean, that's humans in general. The difference is that in, a, in, in our country, in our privilege, we can often envision a path where we might have more than, than we currently do. And that, that's distressing to have to think about, I want that, but I can't have it. But I, but I, I could if I, if I did certain things. You know, I am so seduced by this discontentment. And I think a lot of people in, in our little community right here are too. Uh, it finds fertile ground in the hearts of, of uh, American people. And it's very sneaky, I think, in especially a context like ours, for, for urban, educated people, myself included, we are great at justifying our materialism as an appreciation for good food or aesthetics or creativity or innovation. You know, we want to buy a product because this, this, could, this, is, this is really well done and very interesting or because we want to, we, we just think it, it, it has something aesthetically pleasing that, that I would like in my home. You know? And that's not a bad thing. It's just that causes a lot of distress in people because when we see other people have something that we don't, it distresses us. Or when we see something that we, we could picture really enjoying, but we don't have it, 
but we think we, we could. There's a pretty terrible discontentment there. Another form of distress and discontentment comes from just issues of mental health. You know, for whatever reason, whether it's our society or our culture circumstances or physiological changes in humans or possibly just that we are better at identifying it, statistics show that a lot of people struggle with mental health. You know, I looked it up and I did the math with our, with our average worship and uh, the numbers for people who struggle with clinical anxiety and depression. And on average, 35 to 40 people in this room would have an, clinical anxiety or depression. And I can tell you from, uh, it's a big part of my job to hang out with you. And I can tell you that seems low to me. That seems like a low number. And that really haunts our insides when you're dealing with that kind of stuff. Another distress is injustice. Many people are distressed because other humans want to harm them directly or indirectly. Women are distressed by men. At least we're seeing right now in our culture. I, I cannot believe the number of substantiated claims against men in our society. And, and I think the thing that that has just shown me is that there are, there must be so many women in our country, and I'm sure in this room, who have been harassed or assaulted. And, and um, that's, just, that's just disturbing. And I can't imagine what it's like, truly I can't imagine, what it is like to carry that inside of you. You know, and there's distress of racial inequity, which was once overt, and then it, it kind of went underground and became implicit and systemic, and then that stuff is starting to bubble up and we're seeing it, even though it was there all along. And people who face racial oppression carry that inside of them all the time. I think people are distressed. I'm distressed, and, and it leads to grumbling. That, that's the word that my wife Erin and I have begun to use to describe when we're, when we're fleshing out our discontentment, is that it stays in there, and then when it can't stay in there long enough, which for me, I have a lot, very little self-control, it comes out in grumbling. It, it doesn't come out in confession and prayer. It, it's just, you know, I'll grumble. We're people with discontentment in our hearts, and it's hidden away, and it's... it's in a dark place and that being in that dark place breeds distress and for me grumbling and and for some of us you know it's very justified some of those distresses are incredibly justified and some of them are self-imposed but this is, just affects our society we're a distressed society so here's my unprovable theory okay we sense this discontentment and distress and feel it inside. Do you feel that inside? I'm asking you. Do some of you feel that inside? You can nod. You don't have to say yes because you're shy except when Jonah's talking to you. Okay? It, it's, I feel it in my heart and in my mind. I feel distress on the inside of me. Okay? And so I think that that leads people in our culture because we feel things in that way to look inside for the solution. 
And that's why people look at things like mindfulness and meditation and yoga. And now I'm going to pause here because I want to say that I'm not criticizing any of these things. In fact, they're all practices that I think Christians can use for health. And we actually have a yoga teacher who's a member of our church. And I love that God has called her to teach people to understand their body well, okay? So these practices of inward reflection, they can help us slow down and they can diagnose what's going on, but they are not a remedy. Okay, let's think about that for a second. I think a lot of you are distressed and I think a lot of you are feeling it inside. And I think, for me at least, I don't know where to go with that when it's inside of me. And I try to read things or do things that help me cope with distress, but I've yet to find it on the inside. Although I will say that I think it helps to pause and maybe stretch a little and think about what's going on inside of me. I'm certain that each of you is carrying something distressing inside. So think about it right now. What is it? Name it. Give it a name in your, in your mind. Just put it up there. What is the sin and hurt that boils in your heart right now? Is it discontent with your house or your friends or your job? Could be political anxiety. Maybe it's financial discontentment. You just wish you had a nicer life. Or maybe you stress your finances and your relationships to get that life. And it, it's just a burden that's killing your relationships and your ability to be a, a healthy human. Maybe it's loneliness. Ben and I, Ben says this from the pulpit frequently, that it is so common for us to hear people at Salem say, I wish I had community the way everyone else has it. But you're all saying that. <laughs> We're all feeling that. Okay, and I'm not, that's not a criticism because what I, 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 I feel that. It's still, feel, it's still a hole. It's a hole in your heart where you feel like you wish you had stronger friendships. A lot of you are feeling that. Maybe it's bitterness toward a friend or a colleague or a spouse who's wronged you and you carry that bitter root in your heart every day and it sours everything and it's inflamed when you have to look at that person and be around them. It's hard. Do you feel that? Do you feel that it's hard out there? Can you feel your distress? Can you name it? Uh, last Friday night, well, not last Friday night, well, how do you say that? It was, you know, two days ago, whatever. Aaron took me for my birthday to see one of my favorite bands called His Golden Messenger. And there's a refrain in, in a song called Biloxi that goes something like this. It goes, it's hard, Lord, Lord, it's hard. And I was actually, he was singing that at the show, and I was, I was thinking of all of you in that moment. I was thinking about this sermon, and I, I was like singing that refrain over you. 
I've never really figured out if he's being sarcastic. I actually think he might be being sarcastic when he's singing that. But nonetheless, I was thinking about this sermon and I was thinking about you. And I want to sing that refrain over you. We are a privileged people. But you all and I carry physical and mental and social and financial and medical distresses inside of us and they fester in the darkness of our hearts. Thank God it's Advent. I'm so thankful for Daniel's prayer request that we could bring things out into the light. Because this is the season where we celebrate that we can bring our distresses into the light. A lot of your distress, I'm sorry to say, I just found this out about myself, is probably your own sin and selfishness. And some of it's probably not. But it, that's the case for me. I just want to say, name those things in Advent. You know, write them down. You know, do some journaling where you're praying. Share them with friends. John, the writer of this gospel, actually recommends that in one of his epistles. He tells us to confess our sins to one another because that brings things into the light. That's what he says. And if you're in a small group in this church, you know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer riffs on that exact passage when he says that by confessing to a fellow Christian, we destroy the last stronghold of self-justification. There is no inner peace to be found. There is no inner light for us to pause and conjure up out of ourselves. The human heart is fickle and it's dark and it is ever shifty. It needs something outside of itself. We need something outside of us to shine light on us. And there is light that shines strong regardless of our dank depravity. It's the light of Jesus Christ that John's talking about in this passage. It's outside of us, and it shines into dark places. To paraphrase verse 5, the light beams onto our dark and distressed hearts, and when we allow the light upon our distress and sin, the darkness cannot overtake it. The darkness cannot overtake it. I love this sanctuary at Christmas. It is uh, so crazy. (laughs) Um, If you don't know, the history of candles in the the Christian tradition in in Advent go back centuries, and it's, it's a Christian attempt to reflect on Christ's transcendent light coming in during dark times. Becoming imminent, small and right with us, but yet illuminating darkness. And that's sort of lost on us now because candles in the windows and and lights on trees is just, I mean, you could be like worshiping a warlock and might still have a Christmas tree that's got Christmas lights on it. It's not a, it's not a, it's not tied to faith anymore. But I think we've also lost because we have this tendency as postmodern people to look within 
And so when we see something that might represent light outside of us, it doesn't occur to us, that could be representing Jesus. That's not a bad thing. It's just that's, that's how we are. So I just want to encourage you in Advent to write down and to confess with your mouth the darkness that's in your heart. And when you see candlelit windows and you're driving on Hawthorne Road and you see Christmas lights in people's yards and you see sparkled trees in their living rooms, be reminded, remind yourself of the stuff you wrote down and that you confessed when you see those things. And then think to yourself, 2,000 years ago, the God of all creation, the God of all creation, the one that spoke creation into existence, came as a baby. And he brought light into a dark world. No human has been able to remedy the darkness that we have fostered on this earth. But he lived a perfect life and he died the punishing death caused by our distressed and guilt-ridden hearts, the death that we deserve. So name your hurts and your sorrows and your sins and bring them into the light and receive the free gift of grace that comes from the resurrected Jesus. Amen.